Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we'll check in with the Connecticut linguist working to preserve and expand fluency of the Mohegan language. Stephanie Fielding is a member of the Mohegan Nation in Uncasville and the descendant of the last person to be fluent in the tribe's language, her great-great-aunt Fidelia Fielding. We'll also hear how a nonprofit in New York City is connecting with the city's diverse population of immigrants and refugee residents to preserve their native languages before they disappear due to assimilation. That's coming up later. But first, I wanted to give out our number. It's 860-275-7266. We want to hear from you because we wanted to first reflect on this weekend's events in Charlottesville, Virginia. After a white supremacist rally turned violent, killing one and injuring dozens, hundreds of Connecticut residents turned out for rallies on Sunday to show support for Charlottesville. It's supposed to be a great country, but there's a lot of hatred. No, I don't want to kill anybody, but still, I'm not going to stay home. I must go out and protest and do what I got to do to help the people out. We're middle-aged white people, and I think it's really important for our faces to be part of the crowd. To be a man of color in this country and feel like at any time I can be killed by a white supremacist terrorist, I'm not afraid of, of a terrorist who's in another country. I'm afraid of the terrorists who are living in my country. It's outrageous, and I felt, you know, I'm not going to just sit in my home and stay angry. I'm going to do something. Those are voices from Connecticut rallies held Sunday in Willimantic and New Haven. We should say there were rallies held across the country after what transpired in, in Charlottesville over the weekend. We want to thank WNPR's Harriet Jones and Lori Mack for gathering those voices. Now, what emotions do you recall feeling as you took in the latest news stories and the social media posts about that rally of white supremacists in the town where the University of Virginia is located? Again, our number, 860-275-7266. How do we talk about the racial divisions in our country? The these decisions, these discussions rather, keep coming up. Where do we go from here? Again, you can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. I want to welcome into the studio David DeRoche, who's a WMPR's education reporter, also a Virginia native. David, welcome to the show. Good morning, Lucy. Also on the phone with us, Dr. Kalila Brown-Dean, Associate Professor of Political Science at Quinnipiac University. Uh, Kalila, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Lucy. We invited uh, both you and David uh, to the show this morning because you're Virginia natives, and we wanted to learn more about your home state as well as Charlottesville, which we know uh, catapulted um, in the news over the weekend because of this rally. Uh, Kalila, I understand you were just in Virginia recently. Your family traveled through Charlottesville on Saturday. Tell us about what you observed and what people um, should know about the city of Charlottesville, the town. Well, you know, I grew up in Virginia, attended the University of Virginia, and I'm frequently back in that area. Lots of friends there, lots of students and colleagues. And I think what people who are not from the area do not realize is the importance of Charlottesville as a community, as a community not just as the home of the University of Virginia, but as a place that has had these long-standing tensions over issues of race and inclusion. This is the home of Thomas Jefferson, our great founding father. 
but it is also the home of Sally Hemings, an enslaved woman who had many children by Thomas Jefferson, and the legacies of that tension reach throughout the area. So for me to grow up in that area, to know those stories, but to also know that Charlottesville is a community that is trying to come to terms with that history and to not forget it, but to work through it. So for Charlottesville to be chosen for the site of this violence, it provoked fear for a lot of people, but it also was not surprising. David, what do you remember about Charlottesville and where did you grow up? I grew up uh, about half an hour east of Charlottesville in a town called Goochland, Virginia. And I, I remember very similarly to the way Kalila is describing it. Um, it. And it's very similar to sort of Virginia culture, generally speaking. There's always been sort of tensions there. Um, you know, Virginia has a very kind of interesting history uh, through the civil rights movement. If you look back to the 50s and 60s, there weren't a lot of violence. There was not a lot of violent incidents in Virginia, but there were a lot of subversive types of things. They were one of the first to privatize schools. They sent a lot. Of, they stopped funding public schools after Brown versus Board of Education and started sending money to private schools and sending all the white kids to these private schools. So they have this sort of very interesting subversive uh, history of racism and segregation, which is it's Kalida is describing still kind of exists today, and there still are these tensions. I think. Um, uh, what happened was sort of a culmination of things that have been happening for several years now where um, uh, monuments have been coming down, the Confederate battle flag has been coming off of state capitol buildings, and sort of these rising tensions. I think a lot of Virginians would, would point to this, the incident on Saturday, as being sort of caused by people coming from other states uh, you know, into, in, into Virginia, just like the Ohio man who was arrested uh, for driving into the crowd, um, killing one woman and injuring 19 others. Um, but and there probably is some truth to that, but that doesn't mean that Virginians are above the violence. But I think sort of it's definitely a culmination of sort of um, racial tensions that are happening around the country. Kalila, because you grew up uh, in Virginia and and you again went to school uh, at the University of Virginia, for someone who hasn't lived in the South, can you explain these Confederate statues? Why these these statues, these symbols, are still so powerful today? So I grew up in a place called Lynchburg, Virginia. So as you can imagine, I've heard every possible joke mm -hmm. about growing up there. And what is important is Southerners love history and they love heritage and they love monuments. But we can't reduce it to that. Mm -hmm. So that when I hear people revere Robert E. Lee and I ask them, well, what do you know about Robert E. Lee? There's not much that they can say. Um, you know, the, the kids there starting the first day of school when I was in primary school, the state celebrated Lee Jackson King Day. So on the same day in January, we were supposed to honor Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, and Martin Luther King. And that lasted until about five years ago. So it was always this sort of independent streak of if the federal government, if the national climate is going to say we have to do these other things, we will never lose sight of that historical piece there. But what I also want your listeners to realize, Lucy, we have to reject the idea that this is just a Southern problem or that this is something unique to the University of Virginia or to the town of Charlottesville. When we accept that, we forget the sort of everyday pedestrian ways that racial tension is playing out in communities across the country, even here in the Northeast. 
That's Dr. Kalila Brown-Dean, Associate Professor of Political Science at Quinnipiac University, in studio with us today on Where We Live, David DeRoche, WNPR's education reporter. Uh, both David and Kalila are Virginia natives. We asked them to come in to, uh, to onto the show today to talk about what happened in Charlottesville and the qu- larger question of where do we go from here as a country? What did you feel when you saw those uh, those images on your social media feed or when you tuned into the news. We want to hear from you today, 860-275-7266. Um, Kalala, I wanted to go back to you because you were talking about um, the, the issue of what these symbols represent, but the larger question of what we still need to work on in this country, whether in Virginia or in Connecticut. We, um, after the murders in, in Charleston, with, of the women or the men and women in that church, uh, the flag, the Confederate flag, was removed um, off the state capitol. We didn't see the kind of uproar we saw with this uh, debate here in uh, Charlottesville about removing the Robert E. Lee statue. Um, Calhoun College also as an example. Um, so, how do what's the what is the what is the better way to have these conversations where uh, you don't have these extremist groups then um, glamming onto this as uh, you know. C- a, a way to uh, get more attention to their cause? I think what's very clear now is that we are in a different moment than where we were when those innocent souls were killed in Charleston, South Carolina. And I say that because this was essentially a local decision. The citizens of the city of Charlottesville came together as a community and said, we want to change the name of a local park. It is now called Emancipation Park. We want to remove these statues or have a community-based conversation about the history that we know and where we want to go together. And then that city was seized by outsiders who said, no, that's not what you should do. And so we're in this political moment where we're having debates about states' rights, about local decisions, not wanting outsiders to dictate what our values should be. And that was really the powder keg that exploded in Charlottesville. So until we get to this this point where we realize social media, the tone and tenor of conversations that we're having, the decline and dismissal of civil discourse, these things will continue. And again, as I said before, it won't just be in a place like Virginia. It won't just be in the South. There are already white nationalist terrorist organizations planning rallies at places like Texas A&M, in Boston, and in Stanford. And that will be the ongoing thing. How do you protect local autonomy while still understanding there's a national climate that produces these events? Kalila, how much blame, if at all, can be put on the the, the doorstep of, of our President Donald Trump? That's something a lot of people have been tweeting and talking about over the weekend. Uh, is, it, is it fair to simply blame the president for what happened over the weekend? I don't think so. And I, and I know my opinion on this will be unpopular for a lot of people. White supremacy did not begin with the election or the political uh, presence of Donald Trump. And it will not end once his term in office ends. This has been brewing in our country for decades, if not for centuries. However, we can't dismiss what it means when the leader of this country uses rhetoric that is inflammatory, that paints people of certain racial and ethnic groups as not being citizens, but as being enemies 
of our country. You cannot softball racism and white supremacy. You have to call it what it is and denounce it. So if our president has no problem calling out journalists like April Ryan as an enemy and as a threat, then you have to call people like Richard Spencer, white supremacists, and other sympathizers as what they are. And they are domestic terrorists that undermine the value and safety of our country. Yes, the president could do more, but I don't know really that many people that expected him to do more. They're not on all sides question here. It's only one side, and that's on the side of justice for the American people. David? I just want to lay some uh, some additional context to um, sort of the Virginia situation. So uh, what has been happening in at, at uh, Emancipation Park and the renaming of Emancipation Park from Lee Park, which just happened in June, those conversations have been happening for about a year um, at this point. I know there was a committee set up to determine what they wanted to do. Um, and I think a lot of those conversations were fairly moderate. I think uh, people on either side were uh, concerned about um, the history attached to the monument. Could we add some context to this monument? What could we do to actually flush this thing out? And, I f- and what's unfortunate is, is the nuances that were taking place in those conversations, which was much more, I think, uh, civil before it erupted um, once uh, the white nationalists got sort of attached to this cause. Um, has been overshadowed, which is unfortunate because there's so many different things that uh, or opportunities that could could have been um, uh, taken advantage of where they could have had these deeper conversations about race, about history, about what Robert E. Lee meant uh, for the states, uh, for for the Confederacy, what actually uh, he stood for. You know, he was he was anti-slavery, but he also thought that uh, black people were subhuman. So you know, there are all these is a platform for a deeper conversation to be had about sort of history and the nature of monuments and how we can use monuments to teach uh, to uh, different aspects of history, different perspectives, and that sort of uh, conversation has sort of been overshadowed by uh, the violence and, and sort of the, the hatred and bigotry that's uh, that's risen up. And I think that's unfortunate because it is this is an opportunity need to have a conversation about history that uh, people tend to ignore for whatever reason they like you know I, I know a lot of southerners are always about states rights you know that the civil war is about states rights that's what you always hear but if you sort of look at the secession records they the very the thing that they were were worried about was the right to own slaves i mean slaves were 4 million people giving them free uh, labor, and it was, I think, $3.5 billion industry. Of course, that they wanted to maintain that. So when they talk about states' rights, what they were really talking about is slavery, but that's that's been forgotten to this point. Now that they still talk about states' rights, it's sort of this legacy that, that kind of exists. And those deeper conversations about history and history that people tend to not want to remember, um, it's probably an important conversation to be had, but it's, it's unfortunate it's being overshadowed by the violent events. And now you're hearing from other officials that want from the South who want to remove Confederate statues. I think right after um, the events on Saturday, the Lexington, Kentucky mayor went on record to say that the Confederate statues in, in that town or city should be removed. Kalila, again, do you expect this to continue, this idea of, well, we need to remove these statues? Um, and could this cause more violence? I think it is continuing. You know, we have, we're seeing these discussions in Waterbury, Connecticut, about this whipping post in the middle of town square and of a performance artist, excuse me, drawing attention to that. And that has sparked a lot of debate and controversy. And I think these are conversations that people should have. But what I also believe is that if you remove a statue without removing and addressing the ideology that guides that statue, then it's a hollow victory. So you can take down a Robert E. Lee statue, 
But until you look at the ways in which white supremacy plays out in policing, in terms of mass incarceration in the U.S., in terms of economic disparities, the ways in which that gets embedded in institutional norms and practices makes it much bigger than just changing the name of a college dorm or just removing a statue. And we're just getting uh, information now through the New York Times. uh, Attorney General Jeff Sessions uh, said the evil attack, quote, in Charlottesville, Virginia over the weekend meets the legal definition of an act of domestic terrorism. It's an early declaration and investigation after a car plowed into a crowd of protesters, killing one and injuring uh, dozens. Uh, Part of the reason we wanted to do uh, this segment was to give our listeners a chance to weigh in. Again, that number, 860-275-7266. But we also wanted to ask the question of where do we go from here? And Kalila, uh, you just uh, um, answered part of that. But again, it's so easy, uh, again, in this, in this climate of, of it's so easy on our phones to look at social media, to point blame, to generalize. It doesn't seem like we're getting any closer to finding common ground to have productive conversations. David? We, I, I think to your point earlier where it, you, you read something about this meets the definition of an act of terrorism. I mean, just I'm looking right now at the uh, Webster definition of terrorism, which is the unlawful use of violence and intimidation, especially against civilians in the pursuit of political aims. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think when you see the, the Ohio man being charged with second degree murder after intentionally driving his car through a crowd of protesters, killing one woman, injuring 19 others, it, it really raises a lot of questions because you see the same incident happen um, in Europe and it's instantly labeled an act of terror. And then this happens in this case and, and it, it's uh, a second degree murder charge. And I think that that is a platform for this conversation, this deeper conversation about why does this happen? Why are we so slow to recognize the same act? as an act of terror just because of the, the, the color of the person's skin or the cause that they are pursuing. Uh, and and that's, that's an important conversation to be had. And I, don't, I, I feel like uh, as a white man, white people generally are afraid to have that conversation because we're afraid to, to feel guilty and that if we feel guilty, then we feel responsible and that you know, it's not our responsibility because these were our ancestors that held slaves. Mm-hmm. But we have to have these uncomfortable conversations, right? We have to, to engage in these conversations because how else are we going to actually grow as a society? But the, the worst thing we can do is is to make decisions behind closed doors. And I think in the case of Charlottesville, that there were a lot of people who wanted to have more historical context. But I think the city council, with good intentions, wanted to, to say, oh, you know what, we're just going to um, take the statue down and we're going to rename the park. With good intentions, they wanted to, to sort of move on and, and, cha- and, and sort of grow as a society. But I think that actually gave Richard Spencer a platform because he's saying, oh, you're destroying history. But in, in his eyes, it's this other history. It's an alternative history, right? If they really wanted to destroy history, they would erase the history of all the thing, the things that have happened, including slavery. But that's not what they were doing. But I think when you sort of make these decisions, these, these really drastic decisions without considering the context, which could be an opportunity to have these conversations. Again, when you have more context, then you can have these conversations. But sort of eliminating... Um, or just removing statues without a- offering that context, then just creates a platform for people who are angry to step forward um, and, and, and uh, air their hate, uh, hateful views. So um, I do think that the context is important and, and, and allowing people an opportunity to have uncomfortable conversations is also important and, and creating environments where people feel safe that they can have those uncomfortable conversations. Kalila? Well, you know, I'm... I'm at a point where I feel like conversations can only go so far. Mm-hmm. And we've been having these conversations, these dialogues for years now. 
And the fundamental problem is that fear is a powerful motivator in American politics and in the ways in which we interact with one another. So if you can create the fear of this sort of myth of white erasure in the United States, then it prompts people to seize onto anything to say, see, look what I told you. And so it's great that Attorney General Sessions has called this an act of domestic terrorism. But my question would be, but for that brave young woman being killed by the driver from Ohio, would he still call this an act of domestic terrorism? So was it an act of domestic terrorism when you had hundreds of people with torches descending onto a college campus unannounced and uninvited? Was it terrorism when you can see the images of, uh, you know, black, white, Jewish, Latinx counter-protesters being beaten with pipes in a parking garage? So what is it that makes us say this is wrong? It shouldn't take the death of an innocent bystander. It should not take the death of two brave law enforcement officials who died simply doing their job to protect our constitutional rights. Domestic terrorism happens when people are attacked and assaulted because they assert their First Amendment rights. We all have the right to freedom of expression. We do not have the right to terrorize and demonize other people. That's the leadership that we need, not just from local officials, but from everyday citizens. So when you hear comments from your family members, to hear the mother of the driver who came from Ohio say, well, I knew that my son had some of these views, but I thought it was okay because he had a black friend. We heard the same thing with Dylan Roof in South Carolina, of people saying, oh, well, he had a black friend, he had a Latinx friend, we thought it was okay. We know when these things are happening. We have to start having conversations, not with people who don't look like us, but with people who look like us, who think like us, and who live where we do. David. I think, yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I can't, I can't stress enough the, the need for, um, it's, it's more than just having conversations, right? It, it's, it's, taking, um, it's taking action, it's doing things um, collectively to make sure that, um, that we understand the ramifications of of all these different things. Um, you know, you had a caller earlier, or not the caller. It was a, it was the um, the voice we heard in the beginning of the show, where the man said, um, "I don't fear terrorists from other countries. I fear terrorists in my own country." And just the whole concept of what a terrorist is, if you asked most Americans, they probably would come up with the image of a Muslim man in their head immediately. Um, but to his point, if you look at statistics, if you look at the Southern Poverty Law Center, you see that white um, hate groups are actually responsible for way more acts that could be considered terror, but they just aren't because of our culture and how our culture perceives what terror is. Um, now, there is a legal definition of terror, which very clearly would um, put a lot of those acts as an act of terror. Uh, but that does, just, just does not happen. And that, that is, I think, is something that really needs to take place. It um, needs to be worked out in the legislatures, in the courts, to figure out, okay, why do we do this? Why can we not see these other acts as acts of terror? Because they certainly are, and they certainly are more impactful. Um, this, the, the, the voice we heard in the beginning of the show proves that, that the, the people who uh, live in this country are people of color are more afraid of white supremacists than they are of somebody from another country. 
We'll have to leave it there. David DeRoche is a WNPR education reporter, also a Virginia native. Thank you for coming in today, David. Thanks for having me on, Lucy. Also, Dr. Kalila Brown-Dean, Associate Professor of Political Science at Quinnipiac University, a graduate of the University of Virginia. Kalila, thank you so much. Thank you, Lucy. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we're going to shift focus and learn about efforts in Connecticut and around the globe to save certain languages from extinction. That's after the break. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Many cultures exist in our world with varying customs and languages, but what happens when those languages disappear? Does the culture and people who once spoke its words disappear too? Today we're learning about efforts to preserve endangered languages. We'll find out where in the world languages are disappearing the fastest from Chile to Nepal. But first, a Connecticut linguist joins us in studio. Stephanie Fielding is a member of the Mohegan tribe in Uncasville. She's also a visiting presidential professor of linguistics at Yale University and a board of directors at the Endangered Language Foundation. Stephanie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Uh, We're interested in learning a little bit about your family history. I understand you're the descendant of Fidelia Fielding, your great-great-aunt. She was actually the last known fluent speaker of the Mohegan language. Tell us a little bit about Fidelia. Well, uh, she was raised by her grandmother and and a couple of aunts because her her parents, as um, when they were in school, were forbidden to speak the language, and and so it was it was beat out of them, and so uh, they decided they didn't want that for their children, and so they didn't uh, teach her the language. Um, they just ignored it. But the grandmother was kind of obstinate. She took her away, and she put her with a couple of her friends and and they would they taught her all sorts of things besides language they taught her about plants and medicinal purposes and for the plants and things like that so it was a good thing and then how did she work to expand fluency fidelia she didn't she tried i mean she had um she collected um when she realized that she was the last one i mean there was nobody in her generation that could speak more than a few words at a time and so she collected bits and pieces of, of papers that had, uh, you know, letters that were written in Mohegan or Pequot, um, deeds, uh, things like that. And, and, um, and she kept a diary. She kept a diary every day. And, um, and she kept them in this box. And one day a young man came. And n- none of the young people from the tribe were interested in her because she was probably – she was a pretty – Mean old lady, <laughs> kind of cranky. <laughs> and um, the um, this young man comes in and he wants to know about the language, and she's thrilled. And so they sit down and they talk for days. And she actually teaches him some of the language. I don't know how much, but he ends up uh, translating a whole bunch. So anyhow, he. Um, uh, he was a, a student at Columbia University. And, um, and she, at the end of their, their time together, she gave him the, that box of, of, um, of papers. And he took it home with him and presented them to his um, professor. They went through, through it and picked out one or two things, and they decided to write something about that and get that published. And then, um, then the professor sent him off on another you know, excursion, 
And while he was away, the professor's house burned down. And all of Fidelia's papers were gone. So the only thing that was left that was from Fidelia were her last few um, diaries. And they were written when she was quite old and not talking to anybody. And, I mean, not even in English. <laughs> and so... So her language was going, and um, and and so it was. What she wrote was very simple, like, uh, "It's a clear day today. Um, God is good." You know, things simple like that. That would be an entire um, entry in her diary. So, because she was the last fluent speaker of mm-hmm. Mohegan, can you give us an idea of when the language started uh, to disappear? As soon as she died. Um, she she died well actually before she died because I mean she was the only person that was speaking what, what it. What year point. was this? She died in 1908, mm. so it's been more than a hundred years now since she passed away, and um, and we've been working on it since um, one of when the tribe started getting a revenue stream through the casino, they made three goals. One was to have um, a Elder housing for, obviously, for the elders of the tribe. Uh, a, a second thing was to send anybody who wanted to go to college to college. And the third was um, to get the language restarted. Re, um, and so they, they started working on all of these things. And unfortunately, there was some resistance about the language. Um, so it's... Um, it's been up and down. Um, people have been really full of it, you know, and, and tried real hard. Uh, and when Lynn Malerba was appointed chief, she asked me if, she, if I could translate some prayers for her. Mm-hmm. And she does a, just a beautiful job. She reads them, and she um, fills my heart with with joy when she when I hear her read a prayer in Mohegan. Now, I believe we have a recording of a traditional Mohegan harvest prayer. Let's hear that. Wowi kantantawit Katapatamayaman wachi ki Katapatamayaman wachi sukayan Katapatamayaman wachi ki sasku Katapatamayaman wachi ki panamawank Katapatamayaman and I believe that's you reciting it this uh, traditional uh, harvest prayer. Tell us what you're saying. Katapatamayaman um, is, is uh, we give you thanks. And so it's a, that's thanking God. And then each seg, uh, phrase after that is, you know, uh, for the, uh, the, the, the goodness that you bring to us and to... Um, the harvest that we have, and uh, for this beautiful day. So, you mentioned your great great aunt uh, Fidelia Fielding died in 1908. But when was the Mohegan language regularly spoken? Which we're talking about. Um, I would say a generation before, two mm-hmm. generations before that. Mm-hmm. So it was her her grandmother and her grandmother's peers that that could still speak it speak it regularly. So English became the predominant language of the of the Mohegan tribe. Yes. Um let's talk about how you then got interested in the revitalization of this language. How far back do you want me to go? 
because I wasn't raised in Mohegan. I was raised in Hawaii. My, my mother was Mohegan. My father was Hawaiian. And when, um, when I was growing up, the other language that was around was Hawaiian. I would sit on my grandmother's lap, and she would talk to her siblings on the telephone. And my father told me that, um, that his, her mother, his grandmother, could only speak Hawaiian, and my, grand, and my father only speak, spoke English. I mean, he knew lots of words, but he could only speak um, English. And, um, and so they, when they spoke to each other, he spoke to her in Hawaiian, and she'd spoke, speak back in, uh, he'd speak to her in English, and she'd speak back in, in Hawaiian. And they could understand that, but, you know, it was, it was not fluency, you know, in, uh, for either of them in the other's language. And then how did you connect with other tribes um, to help you with um, expanding your fluency of Mohegan? Well, um, other tribes uh, approached me when uh, I, uh, we have a lot of intertribal um, socials and invite tribes from the area to come and join us um, for, you know, to celebrate a strawberry festival or, or green corn festival. And um, when we're, or the winter, winter. And, and when they're there, there's usually a prayer and um, to start things off. And I said the prayer once, and someone um, came to me from the Uncachogs and said, I hear that you've been working on the language for a while. And I said, yes. And he said, would you come and teach teach us Mohegan? And so I, I went over to Long Island, um, and we, we talked about it. And um, we ended up doing – it, it ten, turned out to be just too expensive uh, in time and money uh, to, to do a weekly class. So uh, we did it online, and we had um, – um, a video feed with uh, Cisco, and they uh, that was we had people there locally, and then people remotely on actually on more than just Long Island because we had uh, someone in England and someone in New Brunswick and and uh, people and someone in Colorado. So there were people all over the place taking this class and um, made my heart feel good. (laughs) (laughs) This is where we live. In studio with us is Stephanie Fielding, a visiting professor of linguistics at Yale University, a descendant of the last fluent speaker of Mohegan. And she's involved in the resurrection of the the Mohegan language today as we talk about endangered languages, not just uh, in the United States, but across the globe. Uh, You mentioned earlier, Stephanie, that there were these three goals uh, when the casino came about. Um, One of them was to preserve more of the culture and the language, but there was some resistance. Why? It was work, and it was hard, and it wasn't what they were expecting. They were expecting that that English was, uh, or that that Mohegan was just a a different way of of speaking English. And it's certainly a different way of of communicating, but it's, I mean, there's a different word for everything, except for skunk. (laughs) The, The word for skunk in Mohegan is skunks, and that's where the word skunk came from. Because they didn't have skunks in um, in Britain. Now, when you look at uh, tribal members today, some who may even work at the casino, 
Do some of them speak it there? Uh, well, nobody speaks it, but people do have some uh, words that they have incorporated into their language, just as my father had words incorporated into his um, English, uh, and that, that helps actually preserve it and take it forward. But you need to actually be able to put together a sentence in order for you to be speaking. And so you've created a website. Um, I have. And you, people can hear Mohegan being spoken. Yes. Um, it's, um, you have to put in the HTTP slash slash, um, then www.moheganlanguage.com. Mm. And it's, um, uh, it's, it's got a little bit of everything. You can download a dictionary, a grammar, um, uh, a phrase book, all sorts of things. And you mentioned a lot of the work uh, that is entailed to try to preserve uh, the Mohegan language to expand fluency. How much do you rely on, on federal funding? And is that something that you expect to continue? Well, we haven't relied on it at all. Um, we are looking at uh, getting a, a, a federal grant um, next year, but uh, the way things are going in federal government, it might not happen. So we might have to figure out a different way of, of working it, at it. And I mentioned that you are, you've been named a visiting professor of linguistics at Yale University this fall. What will you be teaching? The Mohegan language and um, endangered languages and diversity and endangerment and revitalization of languages. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Stephanie Fielding is with us. She's a linguist and member of the Mohegan tribe in Uncasville. She's been working on expanding fluency of the Mohegan language. As I mentioned, she'll be a visiting professor in linguistics at Yale this fall. Now, efforts to preserve languages in danger of becoming extinct is not unique to Connecticut. Coming up, we examine areas of concern across the globe. We find out more about groups working to keep certain languages from dying out. That's after the break. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up tomorrow, Hartford has long been known as the insurance capital of the world, but will that change after giants like Aetna announce its headquarters moving out of the state? On the next Where We Live, we examine the past and the future of insurance. That's tomorrow. Now in studio with me today, Stephanie Fielding, visiting presidential professor of linguistics at Yale University and board of directors at the Endangered Language Foundation, also a member of the Mohegan tribe. And joining the conversation now is Ross Perlin, assistant director of the Endangered Language Alliance. Ross, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. We were just speaking with Stephanie about um, her efforts to expand fluency of the Mohegan language. Tell us about your work in New York City with the Alliance. The Endangered Language, Language Alliance is a, is a nonprofit based in New York, and our mission is to, is to document and to support uh, endangered languages and minority languages both in New York City and beyond. So New York is, from what we know, the most multilingual place, not only in the world, but maybe in the history of the world. There is something like 600 to 800 languages spoken just in the metropolitan area. That's about 10% of the world's total. Uh, and what we do is work with different communities that are interested in documenting, whether it's their, their, their music, their storytelling, their, 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 their vocabulary, their grammar, uh, or in some cases in, in doing some of the kind of work that, that Stephanie is doing, revitalizing languages or working with 
uh, communities to maintain them. When you talk about preserving language, maintaining language, how do you do that? There's a variety of ways. Uh, I'm coming at it partly as a linguist and partly as as an activist. From a linguistic point of view, um, the very first thing is to to begin to document a language so that you sort of know what it is um, and so can create teaching materials and, and, and media and potentially a writing system and the sorts of things which in kind of today's world um, you know, really help to help a community to, to continue its language and get more kind of official status for its language. So that, you know, that means creating a dictionary of a language. That means describing the grammar of a language, recording stories and, and transcribing and translating them, figuring out the sound system. So kind of uh, sort of initial analytic work that, that linguists can really help with to, uh, to sort of take the measure of a language so that then more materials can be created. Can you give us an idea specifically of a group of people you've worked with, uh, these collecting these oral histories? Over the last uh, year and a half, we've been working with the Himalayan community in New York City, uh, people from a kind of five-country area, one of the world's great kind of linguistic hotspots, something like a fifth of the world's languages spoken in places like northern Nepal, uh, Tibet, parts of China, Bhutan, northern India. Um, and recently, in the last few decades, a community has, has, has formed in New York, which is almost kind of a microcosm of the, the diversity of the Himalayas. So dozens of languages spoken, especially in, uh, in Queens and to some extent Brooklyn. And so we've been, we've been working at kind of the initiative of people in the community who said, you know, wow, these are, these are languages that our, you know, that our elders are speaking, their stories, you know, the, the generation of people who came from very small villages in pretty remote valleys now living in New York City. So, the, so, you know, obviously a lot of kind of language contact and a lot of language change, uh, difficulty in kind of maintaining maintaining those languages and traditions. And so we've, we've worked with them to record oral histories, life stories in, um, in something like 15 of those, of, of those languages. And these are some languages which are only spoken by a few thousand or a few cases, some cases a few hundred people and that have been pretty, you know, sparsely documented in the past. So is it difficult to differentiate between a language and a dialect? I mean, how do you go about doing that? Well, the old kind of famous uh, famous quote is that a language is a dialect with an army and a navy, uh, which I think does reflect the, the, political, the political side of this. Uh, something kind of gets to be considered a language often if it has government support, if it's kind of official, if it's used in education systems. Uh, so there's a very political kind of side to it, which is what you see when kind of nation states have come into being over the last century or two. That really kind of allows things to, to call themselves a language. Now, from a linguistic point of view, uh, the criterion that, that people hold by is, is called mutual intelligibility. So basically, can two people who are speaking, you know, two kinds of language varieties, how well can they understand each other? And if they pretty much do understand each other, it's kind of different. But, you know, let's say 80% or more, then people talk about it as two dialects of the same language. Uh, whereas if they, they really can't, you know, understand each other that well, even if there are a few words, then people talk about it being two different languages. But, boy, is it, it's, it's, a, it's a tricky line. And those terms, language and dialect, are often pretty charged. So, you know, uh, we kind of avoid the, 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 the politics of that often and the sort of shaming, especially of, of minority languages and smaller languages, which usually is, you know, to say, oh, it's just a dialect. It's usually kind of a way of, of, of dismissing uh, smaller languages spoken by less powerful mm. groups. And, you know, what we focus on is just the diversity of all language varieties and the, 
you know, I mean, all, all of these languages are equally sophisticated in terms of their grammar and their vocabulary and the things that they can do in a communicative sense. So that's what we kind of work on and, and try to support. This is where we live today. We're looking at efforts to uh, preserve endangered languages and the importance of doing that with uh, Ross Perlin, Assistant Director of the Endangered Language Alliance. In studio with us, Stephanie Fielding. She's a linguist uh, linguist in Connecticut, a visiting professor of linguistics at Yale. She's working to expand fluency of the Mohegan language. Oh, Ross, I wanted to go back to you and to ask you about you know why it's so important to preserve these languages um, and how you've seen preserving languages helping possibly preserve cultural practices as well. Language and culture are, are deeply interlinked. Um, as a, you know, I think everybody kind of on, on reflection can, you know, can think about all kinds of ways in which the words in their language and the expressions in their language, uh, and even at a deeper level where the words kind of come from and their histories um, and the knowledge that's encoded in them, uh, you know, reflects that. Uh, I think there are several approaches to understanding the importance of linguistic diversity. Um, one is, is, is almost scientific, from a scientific point of view, understanding the possibilities that human language has and the variety of forms that it takes uh, and has taken over, you know, over the thousands and tens of thousands of years of human language. Also, the knowledge, the, the, the scientific, the botanical and biological knowledge that is inside, uh, that is inside languages, local knowledge, ecological knowledge, uh, knowledge about uh, plant medicines and uh, a whole variety of things have come from, you know, all the languages of the world, knowledge about migrations and history. Uh, so there's a whole kind of scientific set of arguments. And then there's a whole set of arguments that are really about justice. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of evidence showing that education in one's mother tongue is, uh, you know, is, is, is really the best, the, the best way to, to educate children. Uh, and that anything else is really putting, putting children on a kind of unequal, uh, unequal playing field. Um, there's the fact that people who are, you know, speakers of speakers of smaller languages have been historically marginalized. Uh, generally, I, I found that, uh, you know, people who actually speak the most languages are often those with the least formal education and those with, you know, advanced degrees and so on often only speak one or two languages. But people who, uh, you know, who are derided as being uneducated actually often speak four or five, six languages. And the benefits of bilingualism and multilingualism from an early age in terms of your cognitive abilities uh, and, you know, what it does for the development of the mind. I've, I've also been really strongly shown in, in recent years. So there's a whole variety of reasons, I think, to, to try to understand and document and celebrate uh, linguistic diversity. Now, you know, the question that for any given group of how to, to try to continue their language in you know, especially smaller languages in, in a difficult environment where English and other large majority languages are, you know, have really imposed themselves. You know, that's up to each individual group as to how they're going to work on that. And what we try to do at the Endangered Language Alliance, and I think a number of linguists are trying to do, is is to help those who, uh, you know, those communities that, that, that want to do something to, whether it's just to document their language so there's a record or, or preserve it in an archive, or to actually keep it, uh, in some cases, like what, what Stephanie is doing, you know, really as a living as a living language and a living part of a community. Now, Ross, I wanted to go back to Stephanie Fielding again. Uh, we just have a couple more minutes, uh, but I wanted to, because you mentioned, Stephanie, that one of your relative, your parents uh, was Hawaiian, there has been a resurgence in the Hawaiian language preserving it. Absolutely. Tell us a little bit about that before we run out of time. Well, um, they had all, all sorts of problems, including a, a law that said that, that nothing but English could be spoken or t- used for instruction in the schools. And so um, they changed that law. They made um, the, gov- the 
um, legislature made Hawaiian an official language, which it wasn't, even though, you know, you could turn on a radio station and hear nothing but Hawaiian music on that radio station. Um, so there, uh, they, they started language nests, and they started them with, uh, first they had mixed um, ages, and then they start, went and just started them with three-year-olds. And then next year, they'd add more three-year-olds. And the next year, they'd add more three-year-olds. So you had this growing group. And uh, it got to a point where these were children that were not just fluent in English and Hawaiian, but they could, um, they were, uh, whereas before Hawaiian-speaking children were, the, or, or those that were from a Hawaiian culture, were the lowest on the standardized tests, they were now the highest. So this, there was, uh, and they ended up going to all of the forward schools, you know, Oxford and Harvard and Stanford and, you know, all those great schools that, that are around the United States and, and the world. And that speaks to what Ross Perlin was saying about when people learn their mother tongue, they can often excel. Um, so that's really interesting to see that happened in Hawaii. Yes. Because the government became active and promoted this. Yes. Now, Stephanie, before we go, again, you're going to be a, a visiting professor of linguistics at Yale uh, this fall, but I believe you're also working on a children's book. Tell us I about am. that. I, sh- I should have brought it with me. Um, I, I'm, I decided, I realized that, you know, the first people that to learn the language should be the, the children. And, um, and so I have, um, um, I'm working first on the counting book, you know, so one, two, three, four, five, and um, and all all um, indigenous animals and lovely pictures and um, and then we have pictures or stories of, of, that include prepositions and um, family members and things like that. Well, we'll look forward to when those books are published. Again, thank you, Stephanie Fielding, uh, who is a Connecticut resident, will be teaching at Yale Linguistics and is working on expanding the fluency of the Mohegan language. Thank you, Stephanie. My pleasure. Also, thanks to Ross Perlin, Assistant Director of the Endangered Language Alliance, and to producers Tim Cohn and Lydia Brown. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.